Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the scripture and the gospel reading. We pray that you would come and make yourself known in our midst, that you would speak to us, uh, that you would give us the ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit is saying to the churches, that we would be strengthened, that you would be um, glorified and magnified in our hearts and minds so that we would uh, follow more closely after Jesus and walk in the way of suffering and sacrificial love. And we uh, are, are not able to, to conjure this up on our own. We are wholly dependent on you. And so we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So today is the 77th anniversary of VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. A multi, a, a long, costly war full of suffering and sacrifice that uh, eventually the enemy was defeated and there was a joyous celebration of victory in Europe, May 8th, 1945. That's a, that's a great image, uh, an analogy, illustration, as we come and look at Revelation chapter 7, because in Revelation chapter 7, 9 through 17, that's what we see. The war is over. God has won. His people are in his presence, and they are part of sharing in the great victory. Uh, the church, the, the army of the Lord, is now sharing in the victory of God and of the Lamb. But this passage not only teaches us that, it teaches us that what what it means to be the army of the Lord is that we, we don't fight with the weapons of the world. We don't fight with um, political power and violence and, and influence and wealth and all the things that we would look to as the answers to our problems, but the weapons of our war are walking in the way of the cross, namely faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of suffering and choosing a life of sacrificial love. This is how we fight. This is how we chip away at the dominion of Satan and the demons. And this is how we make the gospel known in the world. And so let's look at this passage together. Um, first of all, the church is the army of the Lord. We are the army of the Lord. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, who consider him their Savior and Lord, have been uh, drafted, so to speak, into this army, an army of love. If you look at verse 9, it, uh, John sees a great multitude <clears throat> I actually think this great multitude is the same group as what is depicted in verses 1 through 8 as the 144,000. It's the same group from different perspectives. The 144,000 is the church in the world, the army that's fighting against uh, those who dwell upon the earth and the beast and the false prophet and the dragon. And the great multitude is the triumphant army celebrating in heaven. Why do I think this? Well, in Revelation 14, verse 3, uh, John describes the redeemed, uh, the 144,000, not as the redeemed out of Israel, but as the redeemed out of all the earth. So later in Revelation, John is going to explicitly say that the 144,000 is not ethnic Israel. It is a symbolic way of depicting those who have been redeemed out of all the earth, just like the great multitude is from every nation and tribe and language and tongue. Moreover, in Revelation 22, verses 3 and 4, uh, at the end of the book of Revelation, the, the, the great happy ending where there's no more cycles of going back through judgment, when, when God's victory is complete and finished, his servants are gathered around him worshiping, and they have a seal on their head. They have a mark on their head, the name of God. 
his name will be on their foreheads, it says, which is the same thing that it says about the 144,000, that they will have the seal of God on their foreheads. So Revelation itself tells us that the 144,000 and the great multitude are actually the same group from different perspectives. If we can use the analogy of a, of a touchdown on television. So we see the play of the touchdown, and then often we cut to the color man, you know, Tony Romo or Troy Aikman, pick your, pick your favorite. And he, what will he often do? He will go back to before the play happened and show you the formation and what the defense did and what the offense did, right? And then often, right before, it'll go to commercial because you got to get that money, right? Uh, right before it goes to commercial, it's probably going to show another picture of the, the touchdown and the celebration that comes after it, right? And that's all, uh, that's an analogy for how we're looking at Revelation 6 and Revelation 7. Revelation 6 is the unfolding of God's plan, ending at Revelation 6:17 with the wrath of the Lamb coming. And then it, it's sort of like someone asks the question, wait, what happens to the church during this time? And then you get 7, 1 to 8, and 7, 9 to 17 that give you during the time and after the time. So we're getting uh, the group of the great multitude, the 144,000, from different perspectives. And this is important because the 144,000 is um, it's a symbolic way of depicting the church on the earth that is the army of the Lord. I say this because every time, and I do not know an exception to this, Every time in the Bible when you find a census like this, a listing of people from their tribes, it is always because Israel is about to go to war. It is always because they are gathering the troops for war. Which means when we read Revelation chapter 7 and we see this gathering, the census happening, just like in Numbers 1 and Numbers 26, it's because this is an army and they are about to go into battle. The 144,000 are the army of the Lord on the earth. It's the church of the Lord, the church, sometimes we say, the church militant. That's why we say the church militant, because they're fighting the good fight of faith. And the chapter 7, verses 9 through 17 is the church triumphant, sharing in the victory of God already. So this army lives on the earth during this time called the Great Tribulation, verse 14 it says that the great multitude are the ones who've come out of the great tribulation who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We live during this great tribulation. The great tribulation is not some far-off future time, but it's the time we live in now. It may be worsening as the day of the Lord Jesus approaches, but it is actually the whole time between Jesus' death and resurrection and his coming again is a time of tribulation. This is how Paul uses the word tribulation all throughout his letters. This is how Revelation actually uses the, the phrase great tribulation. In chapter 2, verse 22, it's clearly talking about the here and now of the church at Thyatira, and it says it's talking about the great tribulation. So this army lives through this time of tumult and uh, catastrophe and suffering, and they are supposed to be in the midst of that, the army of the Lord. And this is uh, what we read about in Revelation chapter 6, the unfolding of this tribulation. Remember back in Revelation 5, John was weeping because there was no one who could open the scroll, right? And that scroll had seven seals on it, and that, that was symbolic of God's plan for the world. And no one had the authority, no one was worthy to open the plan of God for the rest of, of human history, except the lamb looking as if he had been slain. And he comes and he opens the seals, 
And in Revelation 6, we see what happens when he opens the seals. Out come judgments. There's judgments of war and conquest and famine and pestilence and economic upheaval and all manner of hardships. And then you hear from the martyrs, uh, the fifth seal, the martyrs cry out, how long, O Lord? And the Lord says, just a little while longer. Until finally, uh, Revelation 6, at the end of it, we read about the wrath, the day of the wrath of the Lamb. It's in the midst of that time, in the midst of that time of suffering, that the church militant, the army of the Lord, us, <laughs> we are fighting against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it, the way we fight is by staying faithful to Jesus throughout this period of suffering and sorrow and hardship. It's, it's through this period. And now we hear about the wrath of the Lamb at the end of chapter 6. We don't really like to talk about wrath. Wrath makes us uncomfortable. We prefer to think of God as just always kind, always loving, and to describe his wrath feels uh, uncouth in some way, uncivilized, backwards, old-fashioned to us. But I think we only feel that way because we dwell in such safety and security here in the West. Uh, Miroslav Volf, who lived through the war in the Balkans, um, he has reflected on the theme of God's wrath in the Bible often. And, and as he's thinking about what he witnessed and what his family and friends and loved ones and community experienced during the war in the Balkans, he said, how did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandparently fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath? But instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being loved. God is wrathful because God is love. So God pours out his judgments on the earth, on, on the unbelieving world, on, on the world full of sin, the world in rebellion against him. And it's during this period that we fight the good fight of faith. The 144,000, again, is the church militant. It's the army of the Lord in the world, on the earth, and the great multitude is the church triumphant, celebrating the final victory of the Lord, the one who sits on the throne, and the Lamb. So I already mentioned, how do we conquer? How do we, how do we fight this fight? We fight this fight by remaining faithful to Jesus in the midst of suffering. Conquering is a big theme. If you've uh, taken a chance to read Revelation in between our sermons, because we're not going to hit every single passage, you'll, you'll notice how often this theme, this exhortation to conquer or to overcome or to be victorious, over and over and over again it comes. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, the church at Smyrna. Jesus said, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be uh, poor according to the world. You're going to be imprisoned. You may even be killed, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Conquer by staying faithful to me in the midst of suffering, and if you do that, you will receive my victory. You will receive the crown, the Stephanos, the, the victor's crown. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 11, that battle of the dragon and the lamb, which is very hard to understand and interpret. This part's not hard to understand and interpret. Revelation 12, verse 11, and they conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. They, the church, we conquer Satan. 
We conquer suffering. We conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil by suffering, by, by being faithful to Jesus through suffering. Now, maybe you don't really have that much suffering in your life. I mean, we, we have very little suffering compared to these first century Christians. Uh, we don't live like Smyrna did in the fear that the police is, are going to show up at our door, drag us out of our house, and take all of our worldly possessions and throw us in jail because of our faith. We, we don't have that immediate fear. We don't have the fear that we will be martyred. But we, we do have suffering in our life, don't we? What about in the workplace? What about in the family gathering on Thanksgiving when someone says something that is so obviously against what the gospel says and so obviously, obviously against what God says, uh, who someone mocks you for your faith and, and you choose to actually, not in a jerk kind of way, but in a, in a kind, loving way, stand up and say, actually, no, that's not what Christians believe. Actually, no, that's not what the Bible says. That will result, I can almost guarantee, in mockery, in suffering, in hardship. And what about the way you face illness, or calamity, or poverty, or uh, pestilence? Do we know anything about pestilence living <laughs> in the last two years? We had a global pandemic. In, in Revelation 6, one of the horses brings pestilence. We're, we're all worried about a global recession right now, right? Aren't we? One of the things that the horses bring is an economic downturn, if we could put it that way. How will we weather these things? Will we raise our fist at God and complain that he ought to have done better governing his world? Or will we stay faithful to Jesus? Will we turn away from him and say, hey, look, we got to do what we got to do to get by, even if it's immoral, even if it contradicts my values? Or will we stay faithful to Jesus and suffer? Will we, when we get that terminal diagnosis, go to our grave praising God for his glorious grace? Or will we feed the bitterness in us? The way we suffer, staying faithful to Jesus, is how we fight the good fight of faith. It's how the army of the Lord fights against, it's how the kingdom of the world resists, or the kingdom of Christ resists the kingdom of the world. Now maybe, what if you don't face any of those ways of suffering? You know, what if, what if you just live a charmed life and, and God's just blessed you in such a way that, that you don't live in, in, a, in a situation where you're going to experience a lot of suffering? Well, I actually think this passage challenges us because in verse 14 it says that the great multitude are those who washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And we are immediately reminded that the one who was worthy to open the scroll was the Lion of Judah, but the way he was the Lion of Judah was by being the Lamb who was slain. That Jesus' way of conquering his enemies, of conquering sin and death and the devil, was not in a show of force, in a, in a show of might or power or riches or wealth, but in laying down his life. And so if we have washed our garments in the blood of the Lamb, and I know if you're not a Christian, that's a really weird thing to say. It just simply means if we, haven't, if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, that his death, his blood, his death counts for our death, and we are now uh, alive to God in Christ um, if we have done that, it challenges us. It calls us to live with sacrificial love. It challenges us to actually choose suffering. And I don't mean that in a like, self-flagellating way, like uh, Monty Python, pius Jesu Domine. I don't mean that. I mean choosing to live sacrificially, right? Um, 
the, the, the New Testament challenges us to give sacrificially. What does it mean to give sacrificially? I think it means that if you give and it doesn't sting at all, you're probably not giving sacrificially. But if you're giving and you're noticing that you're giving, then you're giving sacrificially, right? If you have those people in your life who are hard to love because they have needs upon needs upon needs, I'm not talking about my kids, I'm, I'm talking about other people. Uh, if you choose to, to stick it out with those people, not to say, you know what, I've done everything I can, you know, you just, there's just, it's just too much. I just, it's just too much. To continue to sacrifice is you waging the war, the kingdom of God against the kingdom of the world. One way I think we need to think about this is, is how we do political engagement. So we're far enough away from an election, I think, that I um, won't get into too hot of water here. Um, right now, we are in, on the cusp, potentially, of Roe versus Wade being overturned. And praise God for that. But Christian, the Christian imagination for how we transform the world, I fear, has been reduced to the political question. When we see a problem in the world, the only answer we know to give anymore is a political answer. When in reality, politics isn't meant to transform the world, it's meant to restrain evil in the world. In fact, our, uh, the Articles of Religion, uh, number 37 from the 1662 prayer book, specifically says that government is there to restrain the, with the civil sword the stubborn and evildoers. It does not bring in the kingdom of God. And a great uh, illustration of this is um, the way Christians in the early church re reacted to the ancient equivalent of abortion. In the ancient world, they often practiced infanticide. They often, if they had a, especially if it was a female child and they had already had a daughter, or if they were only looking for sons, they would actually take a female baby to the edge of the town and just leave them there, abandon them to uh, the wild beasts, to the elements, to whatever might come to pass. Because that child didn't have any value in their mind. Only thing that mattered was having a son, having an heir. And the early Christians saw that and they immediately began to scoop those babies up. And Rodney Stark in his book, uh, The Rise of Christianity, says that the way Christians responded to infanticide is one of the reasons that Christianity exploded in the second century. Because Christianity was speaking into a world and living out what she was saying and saying that all children matter. That idea that we have in our minds of human rights and that the whole abortion debate is around this question of rights. The question of rights didn't even exist before the church. But because of the way that the Christian church responded, because they, they willingly adopted those children and didn't adopt them to make them slaves, but adopted them as their own children. And then those children grew up and they married and they had children and Christianity exploded in the second century. They were willing to sacrifice you know, my wife showed me uh, an Instagram reel, a short video, time-lapse video of a woman who has 14 foster and adopted children living in her house. And it's a video of her making their lunches and making the dinner and doing the snacks and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought, holy cow, that's crazy. <laughs> 14 kids, are you kidding me? Seven is five too many, right? Um, <laughs> so imagine what it's like to, be four, to have 14 kids living in your house, right? It requires sacrificial love. You have to say, you know what? I'm going to die to myself. I'm going to die to my agenda for today. I'm going to die to my goals. I'm going to die to everything in me that is put out when I don't get what I want, and I'm going to serve these, one, these little ones. Our imagination for how transformation happens in the world needs to be 
expanded. We need to recapture that idea that we don't just vote, we don't just give, but we engage and we sacrifice because this is how we fight against the kingdom of the world, how we fight against the devil. It's how we make known the way of Jesus in the world. So how can we do this? Really quickly, this is incredibly hard, but we can remain faithful to Jesus through suffering for two two reasons I wanna highlight. One, because we've been sealed, and the second, because the lamb is our shepherd. First of all, we've been sealed. We were talking earlier about the wrath of God that's coming in, in Revelation chapter six, that the, the, the end of all things, these, these judgments come and then the day of the wrath of the lamb comes. When God pronounces once and for all finally on human sin, on human rebellion, on all the brokenness in the world, and it is judged and dealt with and sent into the second death. And we, if we have faith in Jesus, have been sealed against that wrath. That because of Jesus, because he bore the weight of our sin, because he bore our penalty in the cross, we no longer have anything to fear. And death is not a door into judgment like it is for the unbelieving world. Death is a door into the presence of God. And if you've been sealed in this way, then sacrifice, like Paul says in Philippians, I am convinced uh, that it's far better that I should die, right? To live as Christ, to die is gain. We've been sealed. We read in our gospel reading that, uh, that, that no one can snatch us from Jesus' hand. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. He loses none that have been given to him. So what have we to fear of suffering, of illness, of calamity, of economic uh, downturns, of, of persecution, of giving up our lives for the sake of others and for the, for the glory of Jesus? We have been if we have washed our garments in the blood of the lamb, if we have come to faith in him, if we have put our trust in him, if we've laid down at his feet and said, I need you to be my savior and king, then we are sealed and we have nothing to fear because God has already found in our favor. We don't need to fear suffering or even death because death is now a door into eternal life. A death is a door into the celebration that we read about in verses nine through 17. So have you turned from sin and trusted in Christ? I don't mean have you grown up in the church. I mean, have you put your trust in Jesus? Do you live like that? You know, daily, are you putting your trust in Jesus? Because he promises to seal us. And then the second thing is that the lamb will be our shepherd. And this is the question I asked you at the beginning. When you, in, the, in, the, in your mind's eye, how big is God? How weighty? is God? How beautiful and good is God? Or do the things of the world and your cares and concerns and your desires and goals and your passions, are they more weighty than God? Because look at, look at what the, the Lamb promises to give us, these promises we have in verses 15 through 17. We are promised entry into the very presence of God, and he sits on the throne, will, be, will shelter them with his presence, the very presence of God. If God's not big to you, then that's not amazing to you. But it ought to be. Now, verse 16, he promises us satisfaction. Have you ever noticed that even when you have everything, you feel like you don't have enough? There's a day coming when there will be no, no thirst and no hunger. We will have everything that we need because we have God. He promises us satisfaction. He promises us safety. 
You know, part of the, part of the frailty of human life is even when you have everything, you're kind of scared that you're going to lose everything. But there's a day coming when Jesus promises that the sun will not scorch you and you will dwell in safety in his presence. And finally, verse 17, it says, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide us to springs of living water. Jesus gives himself to us and guards us and guides us and and preserves us. And we're going to have a future with God in the new heavens and the new earth where there is no fear of sin, no fear of sorrow. There is no more suffering. He wipes away the tears from every eye because death has been defeated. And if that is what you want, you know, Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool who loses what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what we cannot lose if we are faithful to Jesus and we put our trust in him. We get God. We get the new heavens and the new earth. And we get this beautiful eternal life. In my experience, that is when we struggle with sin, when we struggle with temptation, when we have trouble motivating ourselves to serve the Lord, it's because things in the world have become so big in our vision and God has shrunk. And so let me challenge you this week to meditate on these verses, to think about the beauty and the goodness of God, to to encourage one another as you go in small groups and your spouse and your family, to think about how much better God is than whatever the thing is that you're mad that you lost or that you're working hard to achieve. Because he is everything that we need. So may the Lord let us grasp his beauty and goodness so we can remain faithful to him in suffering and share in his victory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to mean from the deepest part of our minds and hearts what your saints say in verse 12, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen.